The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord, uh, for the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is in your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Chase. Uh, if you guys are in children's church, uh, K, uh, kindergarten to fifth grade, y'all can go. And if it's your kid's first time going, you can go with them to get them checked in. Um, and if you're an adult and want to go and not listen to me, have at it. Uh, we are going through uh, the book of Exodus, namely the journey from Egypt to the promised land. Now God is leading, he's delivered his people, and he's leading them with these provisions. And this morning we'll look at the provision of the law how God has given the law, and it's a good thing. It's a helpful thing. It's a needed thing. And I have a few minutes to talk about the Ten Commandments, which is an impossible task, uh, but we're going to give it our best shot this morning. And I'm sorry in advance, everything will not be covered, So, um, but it's worth our time. If you were to open a concordance, which is just a section of the back of the Bible or a book on its own, that so- shows where a word of the Bible shows up throughout the story of Scripture, If you look at the word law, 676 times it shows up, which means A, you see it a lot, but B, it's important, right? 676 times gives it weight and importance and relevance for us, but also law in a room full of people, a plurality of thoughts and opinions, the word like law incites something in you, right? When you think of law, you think of something. And there's two maybe um, more uh, popular thoughts on a spectrum, and one of which is that law is a solution, right? Law is what we need. We need more order. We need law laid down so that everything in society is fixed. That's one thought. Another thought is, you know what law is? Law is oppressive, that law actually doesn't give me freedom, it actually hampers me, and I want to be a little more expressive or give more freedom to myself. Another thought, 
Now, those are two thoughts amid many, but what the Ten Commandments is, is to give rise to neither of those things, right? You're not supposed to think it's the solution, and you're not supposed to think that has no relevance for me, and I don't like it, and I don't want it. The beauty of the Ten Commandments is that it is a law that frees you from yourself to free you to the one that has freed you. The beauty of the Ten Commandments is that it's a law that frees you and I from you and I, and that it frees us to the one who has freed us. This week we're talking about Exodus 20, what was just read for us by Chase, and what it was saying uh, was talking about these Ten Commandments. And Marnie, uh, as we were talking about this text, said it's really it's all framed by the fact that God says the first words before any of the commandments are given. He says, I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of Egypt, out from slavery. And she said, what the Ten Commandments are is not slavery. It's a continuation of the freedom they'll come to know as they love and know the God that's delivered them and provides for them. And so we'll see that very thought in kind of three ways this morning. Uh, first, we'll see it in the, the law's heart. Second, we'll see it in the law's love. And third, we'll see it in the law's goal. But with that in mind, let's pray as we study God's word together and ask Holy Spirit to meet us where we are. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as a people who... Um, I love lawlessness uh, because, Lord, I, I feel freedom there. And yet, Lord, you have given us the provision of the law, and in it, we actually find freedom. And that very thought, it, it's hard to believe, Lord. And so this very day, by the power of your Spirit solely, would you work it in our hearts as you soften them? Would you give us ears to hear that are attentive to you moving in our lives as we just like the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness and in the desert, we really do want to know the abundant life that you're leading us to. So may we feel it and experience it just now because of you, King Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, So first, the law's heart, the law's heart. Uh, to know the heart of the law, we have to know the heart of the lawgiver. Right? We have to look and, and explore the heart of God. And the way we uh, can look at it is we look at the story. We look at Scripture and see what is this God like. And on the first page of the Bible, we see it. Not all of it, but, but a, a humongous point to God's heart. And in Genesis 1, right, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Exodus, what we're reading now in Exodus 20, and also Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And in the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter, in the first verse, we hear these words. We hear the words of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The opening words of Scripture is our tone setting. We see what the world is like. We see that it's it's dark. We see that it's formless and empty. And this formless and empty word in Hebrew is called tohu vavohu. 
Now, next time you're at a bar, ask for a tohu vavohu on the rocks and just see what you get. But it's this word that, that means something. And it means formless and empty, but actually what it really describes is the climate of it being hostile to human life. Tohu vavohu, it's chaotic. Life can't happen there, let alone flourishing life. And so what we see is the state of the world in the beginning, before there was, is that there's chaos. And where is God? He's hovering over this chaos, separate from this chaos, superior from this chaos. And the way he relates to it and begins the story is this. He speaks. That God speaks. He, he looks at this tohu vavohu, this chaos, this thing that's hostile to human life, and he speaks. And when God speaks, we see that harmonious order becomes reality. That peace and order and harmony become reality. That's what happens when God speaks in creation in Genesis 1. And so with us also. Because here we see that the human heart is one marked with chaos and one marked with uh, disharmony, with disorder. The human heart is marked by those very things, with the lack of peace. And yet God is hovering over it in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. So when the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 begins by saying, the, it says, and, and God spoke all these words saying, what God did in Genesis 1, where he's, he's hovering over the chaos and he speaks order, he's doing the very same thing with us, with the law. He's hovering over the chaos and speaking order into it, and harmonious order that gives peace and human flourishing then ensues. Just a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, the medicine go down, you got it. All right, Mary Poppins. All right, great movie. We're going to watch it right now. Um, but Julie Andrews, this nanny comes into contact with this family and these two great little children. And, and as she is there, uh, she begins to meet these children. She goes up to their room with her big old bag, and she goes and surveys the room, and she says this. She says, you see, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap. The job is a game. And then she sings that song, A Spoonful of Sugar Makes the Medicine Go Down. And everything she does as she sings that song where the toys uh, find their way into the bin and this bird comes and sits on her finger and sings to her and the bed makes itself all of a sudden. Right? She has this power to enter into chaos and bring harmonious order into it. Everything is as it should be. And she brings joy as she does it. The God who delivered the people of Israel and the God that delivers you gives us the provision of the law to speak harmonious order into our lives. And he loves to do it. That's the kind of God who gives the thing like law. He loves to enter into our lives. It's who he is. And so from the outset, we need to come to terms with the fact that if the Ten Commandments, if they're not a list of do's and don'ts, what are they? 
And we see that the heart of the law is actually that it's the table of contents. The Ten Commandments is the table of contents to the manual of the human heart. That when we see what it says, it's actually telling us a story about ourselves and giving order and human flourishing to what's chaos and lacks peace. So, if the Ten Commandments is a roadmap, is, is the manual, is a table of contents to human flourishing, to the abundant life, I would ask you this question. What is your version of the abundant life? Where, what does your world look like where you are king and queen? Where you look when everything's right and everything's perfect, what is it marked with? And I ask you that question because I bet the things that you picture and the things that you look and daydream about, those things and that reality isn't marked with disorder or chaos or hostility. Tohu vavohu. I bet you it's marked with order and harmony and peace and joy. The heart of the law is to bring harmonious order to our hearts. So if that's what the heart of the Ten Commandments is, what does it say? Right? What do these ten things say? And that's what we see. We see the second idea. The law's loves. The law's loves. Now, um, if you want to be a good person, would you raise your hand for me? If your hand is down, it is not up. Thank you. End of demonstration. All right, we all want to be good people. And, and there's something ingrained in all of us that says, uh, to be a good person, I will accomplish that feat by being a law-abiding citizen. I'm going to obey my way into goodness. And the only problem with that, with, that, with that thought that's ingrained in all of us is that it's just shallow. It's extremely shallow. Uh, to be a good person, you don't have to obey to make the cut to accomplish the feat, to be a good person, you need to be someone marked with proper loves. To be a good person, you have to be marked by proper loves. In the third and fourth century, there was a guy named Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. Um, I am Ben of Franklin, good to meet you. But, uh, but Augustine of Hippo was, was someone who wrote and was marked, everything he wrote was gold, so, so read it. But, but one thing he said was this, He said this, he said, for when we ask whether somebody is a good person, we're not asking what he believes or hopes for, but what he loves. A just and good person is also a person who has rightly ordered his love so that he does not love what is wrong to love or fail to love what should be loved or love too much what should be loved less or loved too little, what should be loved more. Augustine is saying that goodness is not accomplished by beliefs or behavior, but actually, goodness is accomplished by loving. And he's actually saying goodness is accomplished by properly ordered, loved, well, even keeled, balanced loves of our lives. For example, if it's true that you don't have to obey your way into goodness, let's think about that thought and apply it to Exodus. When did God give the people of Israel the Ten Commandments? It was after he delivered them from Egypt. 
was it before, if it were before, his deliverance and this Exodus story of him uh, showing how he is greater than the real God and he's the greater God and better than Pharaoh. If it was before that, he would have probably said, you know what, Uh, here's the 10 things, check these boxes off and then I will deliver you. If you obey and you behave, then you will belong and you'll be mine. God is saying, I have brought you out of the land of slavery and this law that I'm giving you is a continuation of your freedom, so much so that it will help you and give you ordered loves and make you a good person. The abundant life is seen in the Ten Commandments, and it is indeed the ordered loves to mold our heart. So what are those ten things? What are the ten things? Commands one to four talk about how to love God, how to properly love God and what it looks like. So number one, Uh, You shall have no other gods before me. You will know flourishing when your affection and your allegiance are set on the one who has freed you. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God made the human heart and he knows what it gravitates toward and it will latch onto something and call it ultimate. Or trying to grasp the mystery of God, it will cling to something that it sees to ascribe that worship. Number three, you shall not take the Lord's, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain. It literally means You bear the image of God. Thus, you are to be the PR agent for God saying, I'm attesting to the one who I bear the image of. I'm going to show people the beauty of my God by the way I live. And then fourth, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God is saying, hey, six days I worked. On the seventh, I rested. Emulate and mimic me because you are not a production unit nor are the people that work under you production units and around you production units. But when you rest, know that I will provide for everything you need. Those are the four things that tell us how to love God and love God well. Now, that's one to four. Five to six tells us how to love those around us, how to love our neighbor. And it's not just a list that says, don't do these things. Baked into every single commandment is this, how to, how to have a vision for beautiful things and show the beauty in them. Accentuate, nail down, make beauty come to life by the ways these commandments uh, come about. And what's amazing in, in verses, uh, or commandments five to 10, there's no other religion in the world where human flourishing happens for others by worshiping something that is not in creation, right? Creation benefits by not, something in creation, but by putting our affections on the one of the creator, which is one to four, and then five to six, uh, five to 10 gets the benefit. So number five, uh, honor your father and mother. God works through families and through people. And actually the beauty of it is that the place of family is a place of formation. And he loves to work through it. Uh, Number six, that you shall not murder. Don't take lives that are around you, but instead build up the image of God in every single person to your left and your right. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery because marriage is the arena 
where you know what the love of God is like, where you're fully known and fully loved, and not one or the other. Uh, number eight, that you shall not steal, right? You're not Gollum, where you call something so precious and take it, and you want it, and no one else can have it because it's yours. Yelling some it over anything else. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Or you don't deceive, but with a clear conscience, you're marked by truth. And number 10, you shall not covet. You don't breed discontentment, discontentment with what you don't have. But you know what you have is enough. So we've just walked through all 10 and your eyes are glazed over. Right, lists can do that, and certainly Ten Commandments can do that. Because as we explore it and see how it's teased out, even just for a millisecond, it can just feel like there's this distance between it and us. And here, what's amazing is that these ten things that we are given in Exodus 20, and they are given in Exodus 20, not once does it say that you're, you're called to go and live the good life, you're not called to love yourself. But the, the, the inroad to the good life, the abundant life, is actually having ordered loves where one to four you love God. And then five to ten you love others. And you will know the abundant life by those markers of the heart. These are people who have been enslaved for 400 years in, in Egypt. And so while it is the roadmap to the abundant life, what it also is, is a reworking of these newly freed slaves. Here's what I mean. God is not simply just reacting to what was a reality in Egypt, and therefore he gives the Ten Commandments. But what God is doing is rewriting what they knew to be true in Egypt and change it so they know the abundant life. So, for example, uh, in commandment one, right? No other gods before me. Pharaoh in Egypt said, I am God. I am the ultimate one, the powerful one, and I have all the power. Commandment two and three, that, that, that the imageless God and a divine name can't be co-opted to having things benefit you in the way you see life should be. And in Egypt, what we see is that the gods, all these different gods, are, have sacrificed to that's what, the, that's what the plagues are. The plagues are a direct assault, and a, it's a pantsing of, of these Egyptian gods. Uh, commandment number four, Sabbath, that you rest and the vulnerable among you are restored. And in Egypt, everyone, all the Egyptians were vulnerable, or all the Israelites were vulnerable in Egypt. And all they were were simply production units, and they were overworked. Number five and seven, that, that God works through families and works through marriage. And Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. You work through what I say and what I value and the systems I put esteem on. And number six, that, that you don't have an image of God around you and you're not supposed to kill. Don't murder. And Pharaoh says, you know what? You're my property. If I want to take your life, I'll do it. Watch this. In Numbers 8 and 10, we see that the weak are protected from greed in the, in, in the God of Israel's Ten Commandments. And yet in Egypt, what we see is that the weak have no rights and are vulnerable and exploited. And lastly, what we see is that in, in verse uh, Commandment 9, that justice and righteousness are the measuring sticks. 
Whereas in Egypt, they had no rights at all as slaves. God is taking the reality, reality that they knew for 400 years and he's saying, you think that this was good. Well, look what I'm giving you. I'm reinvigorating you and re-injecting you with the fact that you are made in my image and you have dignity and you will know yourself best when you love me and love those around you. He's reclaiming and retraining the things that have been broken and oppressed in their lives. One theologian, James K.A. Smith, said this. He said, Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it's the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. And the Ten Commandments are just that. He's saying, I'm reclaiming and making you whole again because your hearts are the thing I'm retraining as the gymnasium as you follow me. They had to forget and unlearn what Pharaoh had for them to learn what God has for them. And so for you this very day, what do you have to unlearn? What Pharaoh, what Egypt in your life do you have to look at and say, you have trained me to be things that God actually wouldn't have for me to know the abundant life? Where do you need to unlearn the things that are broken or oppressed so that you can know loving God and loving others offers the abundant life? Those are the things that God invites us to. And then lastly, he does all of that because there's the goal, the law's goal. Now, every two years, there's the Olympics, summer and winter. And we all watch each event for 45 seconds and look at it and think to ourselves, I am the best that never was. Whatever I'm watching, I can do better than them. So when you see someone get the 8.1 and the parallel bars, or, or if they fall and smack and hit the mat, when you see the, the ice skaters do their uh, twirly uh, top things and they, and, and they crash, right? you think to yourselves, these are the greatest people in this event in the entire globe, and yet, I bet I can do it. So often, the church looks at the watching world and says, we have the secret sauce. We have the 10 rules. And you know what? Just like the Olympics, 10 out of 10, which we're all shooting for, no one's going to get it probably, but, but I bet you know, I'm, I, I'm good enough that I can land on the podium. I'll, I'll get the seven things of that list done pretty good in a day. Maybe eight on a good day, six on a bad there, there, there's an ease for arrogance when we look at the Ten Commandments and say, I've got this. And yet, the truth of the Ten Commandments is that it's a mirror that shows us no one has a leg to stand on. 
no one can get it all right. Because to understand the Ten Commandments is to understand you will never be good enough. And that I will never be good enough. And God is giving these things to his people to know the abundant life, and yet we can't get it done. And yet when we know that we're not good enough, it frees us from the arrogance of thinking we're great. But also when we know we're not good enough, it's the inroad and the fast track to know, uh, to, to save us from despair when we fail. Because the goal of the law is not to see why can't I get it right? Why am I not getting better? Why am I not a good person? The goal of the Ten Commandments and the reason it's a provision is because it makes us desperate. It puts us in the place of desperation and puts the ball on the tee to experience a God who doesn't just give the law, but perfectly fulfills it and keeps it himself. And that, because of that very thought, the words of Matthew 5 are a comfort. In Matthew 5, it's a gospel. In the gospel, it's in the New Testament. And it tells us about the life of Jesus and the works of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And in Matthew 5, it begins this thing called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives this kind of agenda of his kingdom. And toward the beginning, we hear this. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets, uh, who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, I'm taking the law so serious so as to not chuck it out and get rid of it. Hit delete. He's saying, I'm taking it so serious that I myself will have everything to the smallest T accomplished, made perfect. I will fulfill every single detail. I am the law giver so the people know I am their God and this is the way in which they are to love me and know the abundant life. But I am the law keeper because I know my people can never get it right and I will stand in the gap for them. But it also shows us that when we don't alter it, when we don't chuck it out, just like he doesn't chuck it out, when we look at the law and make much of the law, we make much of him. Because when we look at it, we see we're not enough, it's supposed to be a direct route to the cross. To say the perfect one, the one who had the task that I had before me to keep the law, he did it perfect. He was nailed to a tree just like I deserved. When we see that, what it does for us allows us to hide in his perfection 
instead of trying to justify ourselves by our performance. The God who says, the task is tall, here's the law, to know the abundant life says, I will give you the abundant life and purchase it for you. I'm going to take it on myself because I long for you to know the things as your God who delivers and provides. Longs for you to know his heart for you. Let's pray. Lord, tohu vavohu, Hebrew word of chaos, hostility. Would you take the places of that in our lives? And would you inject the law giver and the law keeper into it? You're a God of order, not of disorder. You're a God of clarity, uh, not Lord of confusion. So this very day, would you take the things in our lives that are marked with chaos and, and have us know that the law that you give us is not a burden so as that we are to perform it perfectly. But we revel in the fact that we can't get it right because we look at the one who has. It's not just this lofty thought. It's a true reality because we look at the cross and say that's exactly what my God has done for me. And may we this very day walk out of the empty tomb knowing harmonious order that is filled with joy. Because King Jesus, you reign. Have us know this truth in our lives this very day solely by the power of your spirit. We pray in your name, King Jesus, amen. Knowing harmonious order that is filled with joy. Because King Jesus, you reign. Have us know this truth in our lives this very day solely by the power of your spirit. We pray in your name, King Jesus, amen.